You're listening to an app session from the 2019 Art Conference in Anaheim, California. For more resources to equip you and your local church, visit arcchurches.com. So I'm Steve Blunt. I'm the executive pastor of business for River Valley Church up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We have uh, nine campuses in the in the Minneapolis area, run about 10,000 people, average weekend attendance. And I got to know David Thurman a few years ago when I was at a church in Dallas and just love what his platform could do for us. I think to give you a little bit of context about this, um, it's, it's no surprise, ministry is hard work, you know. And uh, how many of you are kind of on the pastoral versus administrative side of the church? How many pastoral side and more administrative? Yeah. And, and you have to have kind of both working together. And uh, again, it's, it's hard enough as it is. And if you're not doing everything you possibly can to leverage data to really better understand who's giving at your church and what's happening with giving patterns, uh, that's just one touch point with the people in, in your church that uh, if you're not taking advantage of, it just, to me, it makes it a little bit harder. And so one of the things that we loved about being able to partner with uh, Mortarstone was just the ability to take large amounts of giving data and have it make sense. It's stuff that we could have done and, and previously were doing with Excel. And David tends to be a bit shy about touting, you know, how great Mortarstone, you know, what a wonderful tool it is. But from the practitioner standpoint, it saved us a tremendous amount of time because now we could rely upon the built-in functionalities that, that Mortarstone afforded us. So now we weren't spending so much time just crunching through the data, but we're actually beginning to get meaningful information given to us so now we could begin to work with it and apply it. So with that, David Thurman, CEO of Mortarstone. Thank you, Steve. Um, so um, as Steve said, my name's David. Um, I'm not a pastor. <laughs> um, I Sometimes, about 1% of my life, I envy church planters. I have that entrepreneurial spirit, and I always thought I wanted to start a church. Um, but then the 99% of the time when I see what you guys go through, I'm like, I'll pass. <laughs> Thank you for what you do, though. Um, I did marry uh, my pastor's daughter, so I did somehow weave into that whole network, if you will. Um, uh, so about eight years ago, I my pastor tapped me as a layperson to help with uh, leading a capital campaign. So I have the benefit of attending a portable church, um, been a part of setup, tear down, um, all that fun stuff, setting up kids' rooms and folding chairs. Um, before we were able to acquire 10 acres and um, eventually build our children's campus, we still have to build our, our main sanctuary. I tell that story as a lead-in to, I sat on the front end of what, many church planters are going to do, which is going to be in a perpetual fundraising mode. So if you thought 50,000 was the goal or 100,000 or 200,000 was the goal, think again, (laughs) you will be in perpetual fundraising mode, in theory, the rest of your career. Um, Hopefully it goes from fundraising to faith raising, though, right? Because at some level, we stop really asking what we need and and, and really kind of sew into what we want for people in this area. So that's really where we need to go. And so Mortarstone um, serves a ton of ARC churches. We serve ARC corporate. Um, 
We also do a lot of coaching in the area of, hey, this is your insight, now what do you do with it? What's the strategy that goes behind the insight? And that's where Steve and I work very closely. And so um, our desire today is not to impart everything we've learned in stewardship, generosity, and data analysis, rather give you kind of the tip of the iceberg, introduce a framework to you, and then continue to have the conversation as you guys have needs. Does that sound like a fair place to go? Okay. Um, first, um, just some interesting tidbits that um, we were able to talk through with respect to some of our church work. I was researching on Market Watch, a report that they put out in 2017. And this might sound daunting, but it's not meant to sound daunting. Rather, it's meant to give you a snapshot into who's sitting in your, your chairs at your church. So... Uh, In this 2017 report, 19% of the people in America have zero saved to cover an emergency expense. 31% have less than $500 in their checking account to cover that same emergency expense. Not surprising, about 49% of Americans are concerned or anxious or fearful about the current financial well-being. As a church planter, (laughs) have you ever thought about that? How many of you guys are in churches that are less than five years old and then over five years old? Okay, so we have, you've pushed the curve, hopefully, past that five-year mark. Leading up to that five-year mark, you're still growing and figure things out. But um, So that's half of America. So if you wanted to slice it, half the people in your church are thinking about money. You want them to give and support the mission and the vision But I would suggest to you that these guys don't even have a budget. They haven't even figured out how to prioritize God's economy and their economy, if that makes sense. And so as we start down this path of looking at the data, we're going to be challenged with what do we do with it from a discipleship standpoint? And that's really where the rubber meets the road. So we can have the greatest insights in the world, but if we're not able to come alongside our people and start to help them understand what it means to be a steward, and then how to live generously with those assets that they steward, then it's never going to make its way into kingdom impact. Uh, One in five people, or 20%, are facing a financial hardship. Fall below the poverty line, which is about $40,000 a year in income. So it's 20% of the people. And we're talking just American statistics, not Christians, not, um, you know non-faith believers, whatever you go down that list, it's it doesn't matter. It's a blended line that says this is this is the state of our country. So with that, that's really what we're charged with. And so when we start thinking through how how do we use data, we have to also understand who are we who are we discipling in this process. So um, today we're going to talk through the assessing your environment. We're going to define stewardship and generosity goals, and we're going to implement strategy all in the next 28 minutes. You guys all ready for the ride? <laughs> so first, Bible and money. What is it? What does it say? So lordship, it's, and, and again, I don't want to preach to you per se, so I'm going to keep this kind of 101 level. Um, it's your position in relationship to his. Stewardship, you're just the manager of the resources, and generosity is once you have those resources, how are you going to um, uh, part with them, if you will. Uh, we all know the analogy that, that um, 
U-Hauls don't follow Hearst, for lack of a better word. There's no need to. Which brings up an interesting point. As your church starts to mature, there are strategies that you're going to have to start getting accustomed to because there is a lot of money that's going to be changing hands here in the next 20 years. They call it generational wealth transfer. So those are kind of the, 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 the high-level attributes that we want to talk through. Um, two sides of the same coin. So when we talk about this stewardship and generosity, how do we manage and then how do we view our assets? Um, Steve, do you want to give us a glimpse into what it looks like at River Valley with respect to your stewardship program? Uh, sure. What we try to do is help people um, manage their money well. So we do things like Financial Peace University and we're exploring a couple of other options because what we're beginning to see now is that while we've been doing that program for a number of years, um, you know, those those 10, 12 sessions, you know, some people are, are looking for something a little bit shorter in duration. So currently exploring some other options that are a little bit different format and just to give our people a sense of um, some choices when it comes to that kind of, of education since we've been doing FPU for, for a period of time. But um, we've been intrigued by some of the concepts that Mortarstone shared with us because most churches like ours were focusing on uh, asking people to give out of their current income or their savings um, and basically their cash as opposed to giving out of their assets. And uh, we, we implemented a program um, a couple of years ago where we had people um, to give them an option for being able to give stock to the church um, and and by giving it to us, uh, then they don't have to take the capital gain on it and the appreciated value. They get the full value of whatever we were able to sell it for. So it was the first step towards um, a, an approach, a bigger approach that you'll hear a little bit more about from David that helped us to tap into a different um, uh, type of, of being able to give to the church. And it was one that our people really appreciated because they got some tax benefits out of it as well. Yeah. Um, so there's the, the why do we give and then there's the how do we give, right? The, the why is that discipleship piece that we're, we're, we want to teach. But then the how do we give gets into kind of some of those complex strategies. And really where we need to bridge the gap with the church is we need to start to articulate how that works for kingdom-minded vision, if you will, because the universities, the nonprofits, the non-faith nonprofits, they're kind of eating our lunch in this area. And so if you look at some statistics with respect to philanthropy, the percentage of dollars, not the total dollars, but the percentage of total philanthropy has been on a 40-year decline. So the dollars going to the church as a percentage of the whole is in a 40-year decline. We, we think that's really a problematic at, 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 at best, if you will. We need to be doing something about that. So when we think about generosity, we also need to be teaching how do we give the age-appropriate giver a strategy to give from assets. Um, I'll throw up a couple of acronyms. It would be a donor-advised fund or a pooled income fund, which is a split-interest vehicle, or um, what does it look like from an end-of-life strategy. If you're a young church planter, you probably don't have a lot of those people that are getting ready to pass away they are going to leave you a legacy gift. But five, ten years from now, you probably will, because the one consistent is people will continue to get older type of thing. So as you start to articulate this, what are some of the qualities that we want for people? Andy Stanley says it nicely. It's not what we want from you. It's what we want for you. 
right? And so in the area of stewardship and generosity, one of the first things that you guys are going to have to do is once you've articulated your vision with where you're going, because vision captures that, that heart, if you will, once you have a clear vision, that next step is articulating as a leadership team what you want for people in this area of their life. Does that make sense? You need to make this a case statement on every wall in your church. What do you want for people in the area of stewardship and generosity? You're not asking them for money. Rather, you want them to have a Christ-centered worldview. You want them to be generous with their tithes and offerings. You want them to live with margin. In other words, people today have no margin in their life. I would suspect that you have the same group of volunteers at your church week in and week out because they are the faithful people doing all the heavy lift. They're the 20% that do 80% of the work, right? And it's because we don't have margin in our life. We want them to be savers. We want them to be debt-free. We want to live on a budget. We want life stewards, right? Those are all kind of seven attributes that we've pulled together that says, hey, once we have our vision, now let's put together a policy paper from our senior leadership, our, our governance, our oversight, our staff. We need to have this as a cult. This, this should be part of our ethos, if you will. So if we're going to expect it from our people, we have to live it out. Um, what is... River Valley's philosophy on that, my, my guess is you probably, staff has to have a certain level of giving, um, your governance, your oversight, the same thing, right? Sure, sure. And, and this really is meant to be kind of a balance. I, I love the, the teaching you've referenced from Andy Stanley. It's what we want for our people, not necessarily from our people. And if you have that sort of an approach in your teaching about uh, tithing and stewardship, it, um, it really resonates with people. And, and when you can give them the tools, like with you know, Financial Peace University, that gives them more margin in their life, um, they uh, tend to be more generous with you. We've actually tracked um, people, you know, what, what has their giving record been with the church um, prior to being in a program like FPU, and, then, and what has it been afterwards? And we continue, you know, to feel um, very good with the church investing and, and um, you know, subsidizing the cost of the FPU curriculum because we know it does uh, you know, several things. It helps people to get that kind of financial margin in their life. It reduces stress. It helps them in their home and their life. And in return, they are more generous in, in giving back to the church, just as, as you would anticipate um, anyone who's able to help them navigate life more effectively, they they feel you know kind towards that, uh, kind towards us. Yeah. So, in the overall scheme of things, vision, then kind of what's the policy papers look like around stewardship and generosity? What are the expectations? Because if you have a big ask, you better be living up to it internally. Um, otherwise, it's going to be a heavy heavy lift, if you will. Incidentally, we'll text all this. If you At the end, there's going to be a slide. You can text in and we'll give you our notes. And then there's also a 90-day strategy session to get you rolling in this direction. So stewardship and generosity culture. What do you want for people in this area? And then what does your data suggest about your current culture? Um, that is, is really kind of the tip of the iceberg. When you start to assess giving data across the board, Half of most churches 
of their givers, not the attenders, but half of their givers will give less than $500 a year to the general offering fund. Does that sound normal? Does it sound alarming? Does it sound like, wow, that's like something we got to get a handle on? Roughly 6% of your givers will give roughly 55% or or more of your total giving. So out of 100 people in your church, six of them are going to be giving, by and large, a big portion of your total operating budget. Giving data access. And so once we start thinking through this, this is kind of voodoo, if you will, in most churches. Um, how many people have been to a church where the pastor says, hey, I, don't, I want you to give, but I don't really know what you give? Show of hands. Because <laughs> that's kind of our cultural norm, right? Um, there's some theology around uh, favoritism, right? They've taken a verse out of the Bible that says not knowing what your left hand and your right hand and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so you have this cultural bias against knowing what people give to the church. Um, I'm going to contrast that to what it looks like in a non-faith nonprofit. An advancement office in a nonprofit, they're going to be picking up the phone, calling you, asking you to dinner, asking you to leave a legacy gift, etc. If you make a gift to their organization, that's the contrast. You will walk into a Starbucks and see a donor and say, thank you for that $50,000 gift. We really appreciate it. There's that much transparency around it. But in church, it's one of those topics that you really can't talk through, right? It's one of those things that it's the proverbial voodoo in the church is to know what people give. And so this is arguably one of the most difficult areas in people's lives, the finances. Jesus knew that. He talked about it. There's two topics in the Bible, the two most talked about topics in the Bible, love and money, right? Those are the one and two, love and money. And, and it's like, I had a, an associate of mine once said, I guess he knew what we would mess up, right? <laughs> so you got divorce, which is at 50% levels, enter in, into the church or out of the church, and you got money. And so second most talked about topic in the Bible is, is money. And so when we start thinking about this, who is going to be connecting with these people that are giving in your church? In a small church, probably it's going to be the senior pastor. A handful of people might have an understanding of what people give. But in a large church, that I would suggest that's not really scalable. So as you start to grow, these are things that you're going to have to start to consider. Who has access to people's giving records? Mm-hmm. How do you handle that over at um, Mr. River Valley over yeah. there? It's, it's been one kind of a journey that we've been on because we went through a philosophy that um, very few people could know, you know, giving information. And uh, as we got uh, a little bit more used to looking at reports and, and leveraging the Mortarstone system, we began to get uh, a little bit more comfort level. But we, we've got to a point now where um, we're able to use some of the features of the tool. For example, when we um, have it set, some business rules set up so that we have a report that alerts us at each of our campuses when we have people who have a certain level of change in their giving behavior. So if their giving frequency drops off or their giving amount drops off and the, the person that's receiving this um, 
uh, automated report doesn't necessarily have all the details. In the business office, we can see what those details are, but as we push this information out to someone at the campus, they just know that these are, are people in their, on their campus that need a pastoral contact. And we've actually started pulling in um, information that helps us to see uh, children's check-in behavior uh, because, we're, again, we're trying to, to capture every uh, data point that helps us to understand people's engagement with the church. The giving information is, is great. Children's check-in data is also wonderful when they fill out you know, uh, prayer cards or if they're going to a small group. We actually encourage our people to take attendance and know who's at each of our you know, small group sessions. Um, but all that information gets passed on to a, to a connections pastor at our campuses. And basically we're saying we're not going to give you the details as to why this particular family is showing up on the list this week, but you just need to have some kind of follow-up with them. And what we're finding is that that level of a little bit of a barrier in, in sharing the details with the connections pastor gives them literally a, a little bit more freedom in, in being able to go in because now they're not going in, okay, I'm going to have to have a giving talk with these people. They're just going in find out what's going on. And we're finding out in some cases um, someone's had you know reduction of hours or job layoff or... Um, maybe they are dissatisfied with the church or they've got extraordinary medical bills. And so it, it often ends up becoming uh, an opportunity for us to identify ministry needs that other people in the, in the campus get involved in, in helping to, to meet those needs. Yeah. Um, so to suggest there's a right way or wrong way, there's not, is what we're trying to say. Mm-hmm. That second bullet point, though, Mark twelve forty one, and I have it pulled up here and I'm going to read it real quick. Um, bear with me here. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people pulling, putting money into the offering box. That's Jesus, by the way. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small coins. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, Hey, truly I say to you, this poor widow who was, has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. So, this, I would suggest, is one of the first references in the Bible about using data analytics to disciple people. Would you agree? Jesus sat there and counted what was going on, and then he looked at, reflected on who these people were in their hearts and said, hey, there's a, this is a teaching opportunity that we need to be able to, to use to find what's, what's a foul, if you will, in, this, in these people's hearts. So it doesn't matter if you look at it or not look at it. The uh, encouragement here is do something with it. We're working with uh, Pastor Greg Surratt's church, Seacoast Church, and there's 17 campus, campus pastors. And their culture, since Greg started the church, was maybe two or three people in the entire church know what people give. That was just their culture. So um, for us to, to start training their campus pastors on how to engage with people, it's going to be a long journey because they don't get to see those dollar amounts. And that's okay. But they still have to have some communication, some strategies, et cetera, that can leverage the data around a ministry, a pastoral opportunity, if you will. One, one strategy that River Valley used to kind of bridge that, that transition is we started giving our campus pastors, here are uh, the list of your top 25 givers in your, in your campus. And we're not going to tell you what each of them are giving, but here's, here's the range of dollars that that, that represents. 
And so it gave them an, a better understanding of who the major supporters, financial supporters for their campus was without uh, maybe burdening them with too much information about knowing who's giving specific what amounts. Yeah. All right. So as we start to slice our giving database, by the way, are, are you guys all using some type of system of record for contributions, small groups, child check-in, all that sort of stuff? Um, do not run your church on a spreadsheet. That's my word of caution to you. Um, there's lots of good systems out there. We integrate with the majority of them, Planning Center Online, Church Community Builder, uh, Rock. Go down the list. There's a ton of them. But my, my word of encouragement to you is, is get something set up right so that we can then start to, to look at your contribution data in a meaningful way. So there's four, first, four segments that we want to look at. These four segments are new givers, and by definition, we're saying someone who has not given to the general offering fund yet. So if someone gives to a missions trip or if they come to an event, we're not going to classify those people as a new giver. So we want that unrestricted gift that, that basically allows the church to pay salaries, keep the light bill on, pay rent, mortgage, etc., etc., Core givers, and that's just a minimum threshold. So we like to think as someone drops past a certain level of giving, they become what we call as a core giver. And we can set that at $200 internally, depending on the size of your church, um, the, the depth of your staff. You can adjust some of those so that you can kind of even out that workflow. The top givers and the asset-based givers, which will be an age demographic um, segment, if you will. So new givers, um, again, uh, as a younger church, you're going to skew to the higher side because you're going to have rapid growth for probably many years as you get going, right? So lots of first-time givers will skew that, that analysis. A more seasoned church, a church like River Valley, you might be lucky to have 10% of your people as first-time givers, total giving, because you hit a certain size and it's just really hard to move that needle, if you will. Um, core givers, about 70, 80%, and then your top givers, uh, somewhere less than 10%. So that's kind of how it starts to layer through. And then as you, as you start to mature as a church, there is no limitation around an older giver. And so uh, many of the ARC churches are multi-generational churches, the founders are. And hopefully one day you guys will be the same thing which is pretty cool when you think about it. When you start moving into a multi-generational church, then it really becomes, hey, what's my legacy with this church, mm -hmm. right? You know, it, it becomes really passionate for people that are 55, 60 years old to say, hey, I can really leave a legacy with my giving if I'm taught how to do that. So once you slice that database we then want to layer in some key performance metrics. And so we have our segments, new givers, core givers, top givers. And now we want to layer in some key performance metrics. And so when you start thinking about that, what's on your dashboard? What are you guys looking at weekly? What are you looking at monthly, quarterly, that sort of thing? So as you start having growth, one of the first things or one of the most consistent things I'm, I'm assuming you guys are going to be tracking is t attendance and giving. Is that a fair statement? Show hands. Yeah, attendance is important. It's kind of a barometer of health. Um, it starts to like, tell you when you're going to have a capacity issue, right? 
um, and then giving. And so um, there is um, lots of people in the in the church industry, if you will, will, will use a statistic called um, giving per, per capita, if you will. So how many, what's your total giving per household in so many words? We think that's a great metric as a high-level metric, but we would encourage you to dig deeper because the last thing that you want to have is a handful of people who can skew that number, if that makes sense. What we've also found is that as you go through changes in your church, that number can get a little bit distorted. Um, if you have a, a, a campaign that's really successful at reaching large numbers of new people coming into your church, so your attendance number goes up, but they haven't been discipled yet about giving to the church. So all of a sudden your per household giving can decline. And if you're just looking at that metric, you may say, well, something's wrong. Well, not necessarily. If you follow David's advice, you look below the surface and look at those details, you can actually begin to see, um, and there's there's features within the software that help you to track um, groups of people. So you're able to see the people that have been coming for a while, as long as you're getting uh, retention of those people and an increasing level of, of participation in the financial support of the church from that group, that's a wonderful thing. But don't let the large influx of new people that would tend to draw that per capita giving down um, get you off track. You just have to kind of look at those separately. Yeah, that's a good point, Steve. So acquisition, giving increases versus decreases, and retention. So across those segments, if you're looking at new givers and they're not making a second gift, what are they telling you? They're not probably being assimilated into the church, right? They're not sticking in so many words. So if you're not looking at your first-time givers who have not made that step to a second-time gift, I would strongly encourage you to. There should be a ratio that says around 35 38% of your first-time givers give a second-time gift. So 60 62% of those first-time givers don't ever give again. That's just kind of a national stat. And so when you hear me throw out some statistics, we have um, over 1,500 churches on our platform with about $15 billion in giving. So we have a good handle on what's going on nationally with churches. Um, so assess giving composition, assess risk opportunity, slash opportunity. So once we understand the pieces in our database, who all those people are, we want to then segment them in what we call giving bands. And that's basically just giving you some some idea of the composition of your income, for lack of a better word. When you think about a business, a P&L, a profit and loss statement, um, in, in the church, that would be your free cash flow, if you will, at the end of the day after expenses. We want to get an idea of where that income is coming in, for lack of a better word. And so we and strongly encourage you to segment those givers into giving bands. Um, and that display, I apologize, looks horrible. Um, and again, we'll text this to you or send it to you if, if you like. But band one, low-level giver, zero to $200. Band two, 200 to 1000 So at that threshold of, of band two, band one and band two, um, again, that's, that's roughly half of your church giving less than $500 a year to the to the ministry. Bands three and four, that's your core people, and then band five is your top givers. 
So start to layer that in so that you have an understanding of your of, of the of your income composition in the church. Do you know River Valley's data off offhand? And this is this is one thing we actually Changed calculated it. band zero, uh, which are the people that give nothing. <laughs> and what we found is that fifty five percent of our church give absolutely nothing to the church at all. And I've, I've, as I've talked with other large churches. This tends to be uh, kind of a recurring phenomenon, I think, because it is large and people coming in think, well, there's plenty of people here. They've, they've got a nice building. They've got lots of programs. Surely, you know, my uh, contribution is not really needed that much. So whether it's talking about a financial contribution or whether it's volunteering in the nursery or serving on a volunteer team, you just tend to get low levels of participation. So we found, again, 55% of people give not one penny to the church. Just real quick, how do you know that? Words, so here's what we... That number, right. you don't see the So we know what our average attendance is. It's about 10,000 people on a weekend. We've done some research to know that on average, our people are coming um, about, um, I think it's two point. Um, Three weekends out of the month. That's strong. That's above the yeah, norm. Yeah, that's that's, yeah, that's a little bit stronger. Uh, and during the summertime, it's a lot less because in Minnesota, when the weather's nice, people like to get outdoors and hit the lakes. And you're just you've got so much cabin fever. So during the summer, it's um, probably more like one and a half times per month. And in the winter, there's not much else to do. So you go to church on Sunday. Um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so over the course of the year, it's about 2.3 times. So we factor that in uh, to kind of figure out how many people are we really reaching, and then we know how many people for sure are giving, because that's clear. Uh, Now, what we aren't able to factor in as precisely are people that are just dropping loose cash into the buckets. But we don't get that much. Most of our giving does uh, tend to come in electronically, so you interpolate kids out of that somehow? Yes. Yep. So, yep. Okay. So we're looking at at the uh, kind of the population that's in the um, in the auditorium during you know uh, worship services, and then you know backing out the number of, of uh, adults that are associated with those giving households, and that's how we came up with those numbers. But yeah, we've got in in our band one, uh, you've got about a third of the people who are giving, so a third of the 45% that give, are giving anywhere from zero to $200 a year. And uh, so it's, it's kind of amazing to see, and it, it does hold true for us. We've got um, somewhere between 6 and 8% at each of our campuses that tend to give about 50% of that campus's budget. And so when the senior pastor hears people saying, you talk too much about money, I'm the one in the room saying, I mean, really? If we've got 55% of our people that give nothing, are we talking too much about it or are we not? And so what we're learning is you've really got to have a targeted approach to have a discussion about giving and generosity to specific groups of people. And so being able to uh, identify which households fall into each of these bands is very important. And so you know, a tool like Morristown enables you to to know specifically who's in each of these different levels of giving, and then you can send email communication or mail or 
follow up with them, you know, with uh, phone calls or in-person visits on a on a, a basis that really reflects what it is, you, how you can best steward them at that at that level. Yeah, that's good. Um, and I live out west, probably like the vast majority of you all. And um, I know out west we're probably more seeker friendly in some of our churches versus what I've gone to in say Dallas or, or the South where it's like, they will get up on stage and say, you're supposed to be tithing, <laughs> right? They will hammer it. But out West, we're kind of light on the giving piece because we don't want to like people think, Hey, it's just about the money or, or that sort of thing. Um, there's a church in, in Roseville, uh, Bayside church that we worked with for uh, quite a while. And, and, and they are very upfront about giving uh, and they make no, bones about it. They will talk to you about it. They will uh, absolutely impress the value of it um, from a discipleship standpoint. But it's interesting to note that as you move geographically, those numbers can skew based on the audiences you're reaching. Operational efficiencies. And so when we talk about this generosity effectiveness, are you growing both givers and giving? I think sometimes we, we get awash in this where it's like we look at the attendance numbers and the giving numbers, and we don't really correlate that to the total households that are giving. And so I would caution you to say, hey, make sure that you're looking at total giving units, not just those two corporate numbers, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then are you retaining both givers and giving? What I mean by that is I've seen churches who have really high churn defined as they bring someone in and Two, you know, two people come in the front door, 1.8 go out the back door. That's churn. And so acquisition per lapse is something that you guys should be measuring to make sure that you're growing healthy. Churches that grow fast, they have incredibly good assimilation and they have incredibly low churn. So think about that just for the second. If you're not effectively managing who was giving last six months but not given in the most current six months that's a problem um there is an analogy in church the last thing to come is the money and the first thing to go is the money so people will stop giving when they're disgruntled and they're still going to show up in in church and so if you have an active strategy to go after change in giving behavior like steve was talking about those that were giving that stopped that is not only a, a healthy strategy to have operationally, but it's also a pastoral strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and until we started using Mortarstone, we actually had a false sense of financial health because our um, giving year over year was just continuing to grow at about a 15% rate. And we thought, this is great. The, the giving was actually um, growing at a faster rate than attendance. So we thought everything's fine. But when we started digging into the numbers, we realized we had 34% churn. So out of every uh, year, um, 34% of our people from two years ago gave nothing in the past year. We hope you enjoyed and this session from the ART Conference. Was, our heart is that you are more encouraged right. and excited about your calling than ever before. For dates and locations and to register for an upcoming ART Conference, visit well, artconference.com. <laughs> So we, we know it did impact it some, and we're trying to you know uh, uh, kind of quantify that. But uh, surprisingly, there was you know a large number of people that did not move out of the area. They're still 
living in the communities and could be going to our church but but aren't or they're still showing up they're just they're not giving and so that's causing us to dig into the question a little bit more why is that who who are these people and how can we have some conversations with with staff in the church and key volunteers in the church to start figuring out who knows this family and that family and this person and and do we know the story behind it is it something that's going on um, you know that we have an opportunity to impact are they dissatisfied with the church or is it that you know again someone in you know in in the family lost their job or they've got extraordinary medical bills or something that's uh, creating an environment that's not allowing them to, to give to the church like they used to. So it's inspiring some very needed conversations that we we needed to have. Yeah. And and that leads you to a pastoral opportunity as well. A question. Can you share some maybe some examples or ways that you guys maybe reach people that have come and given the first time but then kind of fall off? or don't give the second time. Yeah. So what we just started to do is acknowledging those first-time givers. I mean, in the in the past, they you'd give money to the church and we would just not ever acknowledge that. So now we're really tracking that each week and depending upon um, you know, if it was a, a nominal gift, they would get maybe an automated email. If it were more significant, they might get a note from the campus pastor. Uh, what we found um, was even more helpful is when we acknowledge their second gift. So if they if we receive a second gift within, uh, I think it's 60 days of the first gift, we really found that we needed to make sure there was some good follow-up there. And um, often what we would do is just invite those people um, to coffee and just to kind of find out what's going on. Coming from the business world, it's kind of like we're treating those people as they they bought stock in our company <laughs> the first time, and then they came back and they, they bought more stock, so they liked what they saw. So this, um, looking at those people that gave that second gift within 60 days, it pulls out people that uh, maybe either they were visitors or they just they were inspired by something that was mentioned in the message, but they really weren't connected with, with the church. So acknowledging that second-time giver, having that kind of follow-up, Using that as an opportunity to find out what's going on in their life. Can we get them plugged into a small group? Are there particular ministries of the church that we need to make sure they get plugged into? That's, that's been very helpful. What we've not figured out, I think, with, with um, a great degree of success yet, is what do we do about those lapsed givers? We're, we're still in the early stages of just basically seeing who those are and what um, can we uh, learn from people in the in the church who may know that family? Uh, what can you know? What's the right strategy for being able to follow up with them? Do you feel like you've had success with that? Though? I think some, yeah, and and it's been more sort of anecdotal. What we're hoping to do is over the course of the next quarter is begin to piece more of that together and see can we begin to systematize some of the stuff or come up with rules that tend to um, give some structure to what's happening in the context of River Valley Church that helps us to just be able to do that more efficiently at all of our campuses as opposed to the few that we're kind of testing this out at right now. Uh, As a follow-on to that, um, we, as a best practices standpoint, will have strategies to connect with people that gave a first-time gift and not a second-time gift within 30 days. 
as a way to invite them at, back to the next sermon series or to an event or to some type of project that's sitting on the, that you know is a high priority for lack of a better word to say hey we're doing this we'd love to see you um, and if you can get on that first time gift strategy and say hey I'd love to connect with you at church that subsequent visit becomes higher frequency yeah um, and then a, a sidebar to that too and and you can really get into this, Steve, talk a little bit more about this, but you can look at who's coming to your church from a persona standpoint, and then you can look at a, at a lapsed persona and say, hey, maybe they just weren't a fit for us. <laughs> maybe our fog machine and loud music was just a turn off because they were going to you know, a more conservative church or fill in the blank, right? But you could probably get mm-hmm. really geeky with some of that analysis too and say, hey, fast-growing churches grow fast because they're homogenous. They're all they're alike, if you will. And when you start deviating from that likeness, you start slowing down the growth because you increase your churn. So there's data enrichment that you have available. That's just kind of an, an add-on to mm-hmm. your your base package. What we found that helpful to do is we looked at who are the people that um, started coming to the church in the past year. What was their kind of demographic profile separate from the people that have been here for a while? And then we also then started looking at who are the people that left the church or stopped giving in the past year? What's the kind of the aggregate of their profile and what can we learn from this? And um, yeah, it, I think we're, our, our staff is still mulling through that and really intrigued by some of the things that we're, we're beginning to understand about how we're as a church responding to the changing demographic mix of our community um we're for whatever reason i'm not entirely sure of it myself because i've only been in in minnesota for um going on three years but we've got the second largest uh, population of somalis uh in the world is in uh, minneapolis st paul (laughs) uh (laughs) and the second largest population of Hmong uh from typically in cambodian laos um, and so, you know, large numbers, uh, influx of those um, ethnic groups coming in into our, our community, but we're not reaching them. And, um, you know, so as, as we're seeing this, the population uh, of our communities beginning to shift, we're noticing that it's, they're not being assimilated into the church with that same speed. And, you know, should they be, you know, you know, we're, you know, different different thoughts on that. Are they are there churches that are meeting their needs? Um, if they're not, then what are some things that we could be doing to to you know better facilitate making sure that we're meeting the needs of the people that God's bringing to our to our community? Mm-hmm. Um, two questions. Uh, first, when you um, show some of those reports to um, other pastors or other decision makers in your church, mm-hmm. are you showing the numbers on a monthly basis or are you doing quarterly um, because like you, you were saying best practices if someone's not mm-hmm. going to give after a month or whatever you send them <coughs> an email mm-hmm. um, so is that more monthly you're looking at those numbers or does that make sense yeah, this, yeah. This? Uh, particularly the, the um, new giver acquisition uh, reports you can look at um, what's happening with current month and then you're able to look at a trailing 12 months as well as um, trailing 365 days. And when you look at it on the trailing 12 months, you're actually looking at full months. And, and right now, if I were to pull up that report, 
<coughs> it wouldn't show you anything during the month of September 2019 because the month's not yet complete. So it would start with August of 2019 and then work back previous 12 months. Whereas if you're looking at the previous 365 days, it's going to actually start from September 24th and work backwards. The great thing is that because of the connectivity to all the major um, church management systems, we happen to use Rock. <clears throat> it's refreshed every night. So the report that I was looking at last night in the hotel room was based on uh, information that was current as of you know 1 a.m. the <laughs> day before. So it's it's I mean almost real time. It's the only thing that I wouldn't be able to see on my Mortarstone dashboard with anything that's come in since that last data feed from you know overnight the previous day. Um, and the second question is when you're doing those reports, I know you touched a little bit on the demographics of bands. Mm -hmm. Has it been more beneficial when you explain the data to to the other decision makers that? They like it's in a, they're in these bands, or is it more of these are the age demographics they fit in, or if it was you know, depends on the question they're trying to yeah. the problem they're trying to solve, okay. um, and that's why it's difficult just to give people access to the platform. You, you just have to sit down with them and and dialogue about it. And with having nine campus pastors, I found that I've got a range of you know, some some of them take very naturally and are very analytically minded and don't require a lot of explanation. Others can't make sense of what they're looking at and that's where you just kind of sit down with them and talk about what's happening in the life of your particular campus. What are some of the challenges you're facing and how can you use a tool like this to help you just better understand the context of what's happening with your, you know, your portion of the flock. Good questions. Does this pull in any outside data, like say Wealth Engine does, or mm -hmm. any viewpoints like that? Yeah, we do something like a Wealth Engine Lite, if you will. Um, Wealth Engine or LexisNexis, those are more what I would call an institutional fundraising platform because you can do what they call prospect research. Um, we think that's a little evasive for church need, so we will give you directional indicators at a household level. So we'll say this guy lives in a $2 million house, pays this much in property taxes, and he gave that much to the church. We do that, but we don't get into a lot of the other stuff around taxes and divorces and public records around that sort of thing because we, we just think that's really not the church's business to be going that deep. And there are reasons maybe to dig into some demographic data around certain situational things like that at a household level, but we kind of made a decision to say we're, we're not going to go that deep into it. But we'll get you the wealth markers, the propensities, that sort of thing that will give you, hey, let's go have a cup of coffee with this person. I think that's one of the, the things that makes it uh, such a challenge with nonprofits is that they, they do use that. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, someone gives a $10 donation, $500 donation, and they have all their information. Yeah. So they're able to really go after that person in a way that the local church is not able yeah. to. And we would teach you appropriate strategies by using that, but we're not going to give you a terminal a point of access to allow you that to dig that deep. Wealth Engine is is relatively cheap; you could do that. But we're going to give you the same directional indicators, mm -hmm. just not allow you to dig into that maybe personal history that feels evasive to a to a donor. Yeah, thank you. I was late to the dance, so I missed the front end of the session. 
I'm, I'm familiar with Waterstone, so I'm... Oh, uh, we can I'm dance later. Yeah. We have an integration with Church Community Builder. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's an add-on platform that does the analysis. I can give it to you after the presentation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. Um, so as we start to understand the data, the processes, who is going to take the work on? And so by all means, this is not what I would say is limited to your back office. You can sterilize the data. You can get it into the hands of people that it can do ministry, but you've got to have to start training those people to do that work, if you will. And so first-time givers, there's no reason why you can't flip a list of these people absent the dollar amounts to a welcome team to do something with some follow-up. They're your first impressions of the church. Utilize them for things other than handing out bulletins. Lapse givers, same thing. Connect with them with prayer, pastoral care, etc. I had an XP one day come to me and say, David, what am I going to do if I call this person and they lost their job and they're not giving? I can't help them out. I can't give them a job. I'm like, yeah, no, but maybe you could pray with them. <laughs> you know, be the church. So if there was a disruption or a change in a giving pattern, that's not always something that is looked upon as, as, as um, an action item that should not be done. There's pastoral opportunities that you can you know, pray with the people, figure out what's going on in their life, etc. I have a great testimonial of a campus pastor in a church in Knoxville, Tennessee, where he called someone, first-time giver, did not give a second-time gift. They were diagnosed with with an illness that took their life within six weeks, and it was the first time they were ever appreciated, but then the church was able to go out and do outreach for for that person, for their family. Top givers, teaching, executive, stewardship pastors, all that sort of thing. If you're a small church, you probably do not have a stewardship pastor. That's probably going to fall under your umbrella, your 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 realm of of, of operational stuff. So, um, but be thinking about how you're going to connect with some of those people that have capacity that can really help you um, with your vision. Lee Deming with uh, Kingdom Builders says it very succinctly. He says the pastor has the vision, the business person sets the pace. Right. So you can have a huge vision, but without those financial resources, it's just a dream. Right. So um, that's all we got for you. Um, It's about five minutes till, so we'll open it up for Q&A. We also have a, um, you can get all these notes that we just walked through the presentation as well as a free church health audit, whatever the heck that is, and then a generosity strategy guide, which is kind of a, hey, this is a soup to nuts strategy that you guys should be thinking through for stewardship and generosity over the next 90 days with your church. Thank you very, very much. Questions? I, Steve, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Do you guys ever, from the platform, when you're teaching stewardship, share a breakdown of what percentage of the church gives? And, uh, in one of our um, messages this past year, our senior pastor did <coughs> reference um, kind of those giving bands just to give evidence. Uh, to um, kind of the, the the structure of of kind of how giving comes into the, and and also to give voice to the fact that half the church half the people attending the church are not financially supporting it and it was just really a challenge to do that but we we went round and round uh, for weeks uh, previous to that just talking through 
how is this going to play out and, and what's the right way to really position it? And uh, he did, I think, a masterful job of um, sharing that information in a way that really challenged people uh, to be a part. If this is your church and you call it our ch your church home, you need to be a part of helping to support it. And, and you know, kind of in light of all the, the ministries and programs that we're trying to do in our community and around the world. And so it was a great um, kind of a wake-up call for people who I think had maybe gotten a little too comfortable thinking that well, you know, someone else in the in the church is going to take care of this. You know, that I don't need to worry about it because you know we're a big church and everything appears to be working just fine. Did you get any pushback? Or did oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, there were there were some people that that you know complained about it, but for the most part, um, they probably weren't giving. They probably weren't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's yep. the, those that cry the loudest, right? <clears throat> Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What percent of churches do you see using a tool like this? Not near enough. Um, you know, if you think about data's in its infancy, where does data fit in the conversation to church? There's still a question mark around it. How do you engage with people around giving data in a church? Um, so I think we're we're very much in its infancy. Um, we think the church has a long ways to go to disciple people in this area, um, use it effectively, um, especially big data. And when I talk about big data, I mean appending your household record to outside databases. There's there's lots of things that we can be used data to do to help you know advance and grow at, at a more rapid rate. And so that's yeah, I I think. We're in, we're in its infancy. What would you mm -hmm. think, Steve? I, absolutely. It's infancy. And it's an area where a lot of churches just tend to shy away from it because of the perception you don't want you know, people to feel like big brothers looking over. You know, We're one of those few churches that uses the tool like Mortarstone. We also subscribe to Wealth Engine. Um, but we, um, we probably had it for maybe a year or a little bit longer before we felt comfortable doing anything with the data because all of a sudden we realized there's just so much here. What's the responsible way of, of really using this to help um, steward our people and, and you know, guide yeah, them? We, we, we're, we're really curious in that category. And then, too, does Waterstone have something that, uh, that all the communication, like, say, all the emails or whatever, all goes through so you can track click on a donor, I can see all my stream of communication with that guy, what, what it's been to follow up, you know, see our responses. Yeah, that, that would be, at this stage, we'd say that's probably scope creep with where we're at. We're an analysis program with specific workflows, and we do allow you to have conversations put into the software, but we don't know where we want to go as we grow up as a company. Do we get into communication? Do we get into... You know some of these other um, offshoots of the native church management solution. 